Hello, friends, and welcome to Something to Talk About, a podcast created specifically for our women here at First Pres Augusta. I'm Amber Barrett, and for the next several weeks, Vanessa Hawkins and I, along with various members of our Bible study teaching team, will continue talking together about God's Word, specifically the book of Ecclesiastes and the unique ways it enlightens our lives. Joining Vanessa and me today are Julie Wiggins and Sarah Price. So Julie and Sarah, thank you all for being here this morning. First things first, ladies, I want you to introduce yourselves and then tell us about the first time you had stitches. Thank you, first of all, for inviting me. Um, My name is Julie Wiggins, and I'm married to Skip. We will celebrate 36 years of marriage as of the 13th of October. We have three married children and four precious grandchildren, ranging in age from four months to three years old. And we're expecting our fifth grandchild this Thanksgiving. I've just retired from teaching, so I'm in a new stage of life right now. And the first time I received stitches, I never had any growing up. In fact, I was 34 years old when I first had to have stitches. After the birth of our youngest daughter, I had to have an emergency hysterectomy, and I'm sure there were stitches Mm. involved in that. But the first time I remember being able to see my abdomen, all I saw were like 8 to 12 staples, and they were holding me together. And so I ended up with this lovely 4-inch scar. God gave many miracles and blessings during that adventure, but concerning the stitches and staples, I never felt any discomfort, even when the staples were removed. It was pretty amazing. Uh, My name is Sarah Price, and my husband John and I have lived in Augusta since 2004. We have been married for 19 years this month, and Mm -hmm. we have four kids aged 14, 12, 9 and a half, and 3, so... We're kind of in every stage of life at the moment, I feel like. Um, I don't really have a great stitches story. I I thought the first time I got stitches was with babies. I had an emergency C-section with my third and a planned one with my fourth. I know there were staples, but I'm sure there were stitches as well. Uh, but my I called my mom because I was like, surely I've had stitches. And she, I have had some moles removed on my back when I was about 10 mm-hmm. that they thought were precancerous, so... I did get stitches stitches for those, which is better than cancer, so. That's true. That's true. No wonder you didn't remember that. That's not really a stitches story. (laughs) When she said it, I was like, oh, I do remember sitting out of PE, but that was the most important part of all of that for me was skipping PE. Okay, ladies, so I've got to tell you that I'm feeling picked on by the first things, first questions, and this isn't the first time we did this (laughs) When she talked about, when Amber asked us about closet stuff, and now she's asking other embarrassing stories about stitches. Okay, so none when I was growing up. Um, No childhood incidents that required stitches. However, I waited till the ripe old age of 44. Oh. We were, when we first moved here, we were staying in a house that had a set of stairs up to the front door. And at the bottom of the stairs was a nice concrete porch. I had gotten home from work run up the stairs, head on high heels, as I typically did. And when I got inside the door, there was a bag of trash by the door. And I thought, let me just take that out now. And so I put my bag down, grabbed the trash, went down the stairs in my heels, (laughs) carrying the trash, except my heel caught on a stair. And I tumbled down the steps and landed very awkwardly (laughs) at the bottom of the steps, 
the trash and I, I just remember sitting down at the bottom of the steps in a world of pain, my knee torn open, bleeding oh, through my pants oh. and sitting there looking at the trash. <laughs> and it was just, and it was just me. But have you ever Being been, some, have you ever experienced something that was so embarrassing that you were just embarrassed, you know, yeah, and there was yeah, nobody watching, yeah, I don't yeah. think, but you know, I just felt incredibly embarrassed. It was awful. So I sat there because my daughter was upstairs on the second floor. She couldn't hear me, so she didn't know I was down there bleeding and, you know, sitting, hanging out with trash. Well, my other two daughters came home shortly after and said, Mom, what in the world? What are you you doing? And so uh, they kind of helped me got up, and we maneuvered up to the stairs, got me situated on the bed so that we could take a look at my knee. And the youngest comes down the stairs and finds out what's going on. And then she looks at my uh, other two daughters and she says, guys, I think it's time. <laughs> and they're like, what? And we're all looking at her like, what? We've got to get mom a life alert bracelet. Oh, it's hilarious. <laughs> she is the worst. She is still the worst. So there's my stitches story. We had to go to the um, urgent care and get stitches in my knee. Oh, how many did you have to get? I don't, it wasn't a lot, maybe five. Okay. But, you know. Well, your youngest is the one that pays me to ask these questions. I, I believe that. <laughs> so. I believe that because she is definitely the ham. So, yeah. Oh, that's funny. Well, I have a brief memory of when I got stitches. I don't remember getting them. I don't remember the incident that occurred to uh, necessitate them. But I remember how I felt afterwards. And the medication that they gave me to have stitches made me so sick that I vividly remember spiders feeling like I saw spiders crawling. I was hallucinating up and down my wall. So I remember that. And but I have to go back and ask my parents about the incident and what had what happened was that we were keeping my grandparents' dog and the dog was older, probably twelve years old. And he was sleeping underneath our dinner table. And I was two and I loved all things warm and furry. And so I crawled underneath the table just to give the doggie a kiss. And when I hugged the doggie's neck and went in to kiss him he bit my face. And oh, so no. if you look closely, I still have a scar right in the corner of my eye, right about the bridge of my nose. And so that required some stitches that fortunately I don't remember. It was very traumatic for my folks, but I do remember the effect of that medicine on me. It made me feel mm. so bad. Wow. I mean, I'm going to say it's a bit of a shock uh, when the family dog bites you in your oh, own no. home, <laughs> you know? Yes. And as we talked about last week, it's also a bit of shock, a bit of a shock when you find yourself hurt or hurting others in the house of God. However, our hope last week rested on the fact that God continues to reside over his house in such a way that despite the failings of its members, it truly is a place where we can come to experience the blessings of God's presence in the midst of a broken world. We also said last week that God's presence is not restricted to his house. It goes out into all the world. So how do we experience the joy and satisfaction of God's presence in the midst of a broken world? Today, we're going to deal with that question, particularly as it relates to money. In our passage for today, the preacher speaks to three messed up monetary situations. In chapter 5, verses 8 through 9, he describes economic oppression, in which those in power become richer at the cost of those who work for them. This type of oppression causes angst and vexation that understandably threatens the victim's ability to enjoy or even believe in the presence of God. In 5, 13 through 17, the preacher speaks of those who through their own foolishness or thwarted plans have lost their monetary wealth and have no prospect of regaining it. 
their sense of loss and devastation is all-consuming. And then in bigger sections, 5, 10 through 12, and then 6, 1 through 12, Solomon tells his readers about those who have an abundance of wealth but no ability to enjoy it. They depend on their wealth for security and satisfaction, but instead it eats away at them for the duration of their lives until they die and their wealth is given to a stranger. Solomon puts words to many of the problems connected to wealth that we experience and see all around us, but he also gives us hope. In the middle of our passage for today, he says, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and to rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Vanessa, what do you understand about the description Solomon gives here about our God-given lot in life and the ability he gives us to enjoy it? Yeah, I think some context is certainly helpful here in considering these verses on wealth, as it could be perceived, as some do, that wealth in itself is evil. And that's just not what Scripture is suggesting. It's important that we read it in its proper context. And Solomon's wealth was God's good gift to him. In his prayer to the Lord in 1 Kings 3, he recounts the Lord's faithfulness to his father David and David's love for the Lord. He asked the Lord for wisdom to discern good and evil and to govern his people. The Lord was pleased with the heart that would request this of him and said, not only will I give you wisdom, but I'll give you wealth and honor too. The wealth was a good gift given to one whom he would give a discerning heart, one that was dependent upon him and recognized his faithfulness. Now, our given lot in life is, as it concerns earning wealth, is both born out of God's sovereignty and our responsibility. I think about the parable of the talents here. Uh, In Matthew 25, the rich landowner who represents the Lord gave talents to his servants. One, he gave five talents, one, two talents, one, one talent, as he saw fit according to their ability. And it is the Lord who gives us the ability to learn wealth. We learn in Deuteronomy 8, uh, the passage that says, remember that it is the Lord your God who gives you power to gain wealth. So gaining wealth certainly has a component that's God's power, its purposes, and a component that's our ability. Both are true, and one doesn't negate the other. But our ability to enjoy wealth, as you were asking, Amber, comes from both the orientation of our hearts towards the wealth and how our hearts are oriented towards God. Um, And he has given the ability uh, to gain it and how he has given us the ability to gain wealth. So in Solomon's case, that wealth was given under the premise of a wise heart who loved the Lord. It would suggest then that this is the way for it to be enjoyed. Solomon's heart was seeking wisdom to serve people. Um, He was outward focused, which also suggests that's the right heart orientation for using wealth wisely. What we learn from Solomon in Ecclesiastes 6, particularly verse 7, is that all the toil of man, when produced just for his own selfish purposes, will never satisfy him. That verse reads, all the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. So created things were never meant to satisfy us. They were meant to be enjoyed and stewarded well, but never to give ultimate satisfaction. It is the Lord who longs to satisfy us with himself and will allow nothing else to feel that longing but him. So considering that our ability to gain wealth has both a component 
that involves the sovereign purposes of God, as well as our own abilities, how does your understanding of the way God ordains your lot in life affect the way you view those who have more or less wealth than you? Let's talk about that a bit. Well, I think for me, it has really been understanding the difference between wealth in a spiritual sense and wealth in a worldly sense. And so, you know, culturally, success is defined by how much money we have or maybe how what we've done with it, how much we've spent of it um, on ourselves, usually. Um, and the Lord really wants to provide his his idea of wealth for us is rest, um, enjoyment, contentment, mm-hmm. gratitude, things that are enable us to love him rather than distract us from him. And the in chapter six, verse nine, it says, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. Um, and just for us, it ha- has been knowing that our faith will be sight one day that God is the best, is so much more fulfilling than whatever our flesh is desiring at the moment, Mm -hmm. because it really does change. And it really is not, it's not a stable fulfillment the way that um, really pursuing hard after the Lord is. I love the way that you express that, that pursuing a heart after the Lord. That is so true. And I, I really appreciate that. Um, sort of coming from the other side, Vanessa, you mentioned the, the two sides of, of approaching wealth. Um, and watching Tommy Nelson's video, I really resonated with that statement he made, don't let what you don't have take away the joy of what you do have. And in other words, be content with your lot. So kind of coming from that perspective of me, when I'm content with where God has me, then the way I view others is pleasing to him and it brings me joy. I'm concerned with my relationship with friends, regardless of their wealth. I want to know them more deeply. I want to hear about their walk with the Lord and what God is teaching them. However, when I become discontent with my own lot because of what I call those mental idols, those thoughts of superiority, those wrong expectations, those comparisons of where I am and where others are, I start to view those with more wealth as having opportunities and things that I crave and become obsessed with. And I view those with less as if it's, well, their problem. And, you know, maybe I can help them fix it. With this kind of wrong thinking, I jeopardize any relationship I have with these friends. I hurt myself and ultimately hurt my walk with the Lord. Paul writes about contentment in Philippians 4. He says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him, key, key phrase, who strengthens me. God wants us to trust him and to enjoy him. Let's be content with the lot he's given. Mm-hmm. That's so good. Um, that passage of Paul knowing how to be a base and, and to be uh, how to abound. Man, that resonates with me because life circumstances have given me a breadth of experiences. And I know what it is to be able to pay the bills, not not to be able to pay the bills. Um, yeah, I know what it is to be able to pay them too. <laughs> yeah. But I know what it is yeah. to not be able to pay the bills. Mm-hmm. I know what it is to have plenty. And I think that that gives me the ability to relate to a broad swath of people. And that's been a blessing in the role where I serve so many women. Um, it helps me to see a bit of myself in any of those situations. And so I think more than comparing, I, what I end up doing is relating 
And I think that that's because of just the broad experiences and places, um, you know, along the way that the Lord has um, allowed me to be in. And when I go back to this parable of talents, I'm fascinated that the thrust of the discussion is about what each servant was was given to steward well. And it's kind of like you were saying, it was it it wasn't about the side to side comparison. It was about what they were given and. The one with the five talents wasn't expected to produce what the one with two talents produced. Each of them were affirmed by the landowner for what they did with what they were given and not in how they measured up to the other servants. So that's a helpful reminder for me to steward well what's been given to the glory of God and to guard against those unhealthy and unhelpful comparisons. So, Yeah, that's a great way to explain that. Just the reminder to me when you're saying that, 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 that pairing together of responsibility and sovereignty and they were given something and they did something with something. And when I get rid of either one of those components, then I end up thinking wrongly. And for me, if I discount the hand of God in determining my place in life or my possessions, then I inevitably inevitably view both of those things either in light of my own efforts or conversely as random privilege so when I look at what I have as a result of and can attribute that to my hard work solely, then I tend to envy those who have more and I count myself inferior to them because they're just sort of that standard that I should be measuring up to and I haven't. And then I could look at others who have less than me and think, well, you just need to work harder, you know, or when I view what I have in terms of random privilege, random then I tend to feel guilty in regards to those who have less than me and judgmental towards those who have more. So yeah, that the comparison thing always leaves you in a in a bad place. And the only remedy for that is to stop looking at myself and to start looking at the Lord and then be freed up to do what he's enabled me to do with what he's given me. Um, can y'all describe a time in your lives when you did go after wealth in a way that left you disappointed? I think that's a great question. Um, I had, just even as you ask it, you know, the first thing comes to mind, you think career or, or those type of things. And and that was never the case for me of pursuing wealth that way. But I can't think of two examples. I remember having a garage sale and really working hard to set it up, to organize everything, to label all the prices. It was sunny and cold the day of the sale, close to Christmas. We had hot chocolate available and Christmas carols playing. I mean, it was the perfect day. Skip had the kids inside and I was ready. There was a great turnout. It was so much fun. It really was a great time. I was thrilled, even with the amount of money that we raised. And I'm, I just thought, this, this is the best. This is the best. Well, a couple of days later, I was talking with other friends who had had garage sales at the exact same time. And as we're sharing about our different experiences, I can remember that moment. When they started saying, well, we made this much money. We made this much money. And all the joy in that moment. It just, and I thought, you know, later, how, how stupid is that? You know, repent of this quick. But, um, but comparing, again, mm-hmm. my yeah. results to somebody else, which just ruined it. And uh, the other thing, besides comparing, I think expectations sometimes really mess us up with what we hope to get. We had to have an estate sale for our parents' house. My brother, sister, and I were preparing to put the house on the market. We're at the point of needing to have an estate sale. So we worked hard. We cleaned everything up. We managed it. We organized it, yada, yada. And we also had a pretty good idea of what our parents had paid 
for the things that were left over. And we thought, okay, this, we kind of think this is what we'll get. And of course, our expectations and reality were so different. So thankful for the sale, but disappointed in that final amount. So mm -hmm. expectations mm -hmm. um, and comparison, again, can yeah. um, lead to that disappointment. Yes. Well, no one would ever accuse me of being a workaholic in order to earn a ton of money. In fact, I have spent the first three years of our marriage working while John was in law school and uh, once we had babies at home with them. So there's not a lot of earning that I do, um, but I think we can be wrapped up. Our wealth can be um, the things around us. And when you stay home all the time, that's your house. So, um, and I do think it is a gift to repair, renovate, maintain, and beautify the places around us. But like anything else good, it can become an idol. And uh, we have recently had, I was going to tell you a story from a long time ago, but we have had a very recent incident at home. Uh, we had shifted some things around and I bought new rugs for our playroom, which is also where we have pizza Fridays. And I was really excited about these rugs. They are beautiful, wool and beige, almost white. And when I got them, John was like, this might not have been the best decision. And I was like, just leave me alone. I, I am doing this. And um, so about a year later now, the rug, one of the rugs in particular, where the toddler sits for pizza night <laughs> is disgusting. Um, so we have had to, I'm borrowing a friend's upholstery cleaner. I have moved them to another room where we don't eat as much. I think the end result is going to be good, but it has just been one of those things where I wanted it to look a certain way and I didn't really factor in my real life and it came back to bite me. So, um, it is causing, like so many times we run after wealth, it is causing, so much discord in our family because I'm irritated the kids are eating on the rug or um, the kids are having to clean. In the whole process of cleaning, one of my sons got sprayed in the face with carpet cleaner by the three-year-old. So it just is one of those, like, I wish the rugs didn't exist moments when you realize that these pie-in-the-sky dreams you have for what your house looks like or what you have um, just really aren't where God's put you right now. So um, that has been like a yesterday recent kind of thing in our life. Oh, love it. Yeah. That, well, wouldn't you say that that's just not where God's placed you in your life right now? That's been a hard concept for me. Like I, when you do compare, you tend to think, well, they do that. I should do that. They do that. I could do that. They do that. I should do that. And that gets uh, very challenging. You know, as my boys are getting older, my time is a little bit different and our expenses increase, you know, and so recently I've been considering, all right, what does it look like for me to contribute as these expenses increase? And do I need to try to make more money? And it might be that I need to, you know, I've been a stay at home mom for over 15 years with a small part-time job on the side. And it might be necessary for me to find a way to add to our income. But I've found that if I allow the temptation to pursue a job simply for the sake of money, regardless, this is the important part, regardless of the cost to my family or myself, then we would all experience 
what it would be like to have more money but less happiness. And that's hard to hold those two together. There is a need, but what am I willing to sacrifice? And I'm finding that it takes wisdom to know how to sort how to sort that out. That's really good um, because I, I think what I witnessed growing up were parents who um, were blue-collar workers. So they didn't earn a lot of money. We were, and it was nine of us. I'm the youngest of nine. And they just managed what they had so incredibly well. And they had great contentment in, in, in what they had and what we had. <clears throat> and I've always, the Lord has, for whatever his sovereign purposes are, he has always allowed me jobs that um, have given me opportunity to earn a, a good wage, uh, a good living. And my first job in particular, I was 18, and I had a job as an engineering technician. It was a part of a scholarship opportunity at a paper mill, actually, at a paper mill. And But I, what I had seen was my parents do a lot with little. And so, you know, for me... What I thought would happen was I would take what I had and it would look a lot like what what I had seen them do, except I just kind of blew through it. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is great. Yeah, except it didn't. Yeah, it it, it looked nothing. It's like this isn't how that looked when they did it. Well, they were doing something different because they had some different principles that were governing what they did because they were wise in their spending. And I thought having, you know, an, in my mind, that was an abundance of wealth because I was 18. I, I was still living home with my parents. All I had was a car. That was, that was my expense, right? And so, you know, I, I thought I would have the good money management and, and, and contentment that I saw modeled, but I just, I lacked the wisdom to live it out. And so my, my enjoyment was limited because I just didn't have the wisdom to hang on to it. So I think part of pursuing wealth is being able to hang on to it. <laughs> and <laughs> I could, so it, it came easy to me, came easy enough. I had yeah. opportunities aplenty, but it was the hanging on to it that eluded me. So what does it look like in your lives when you are enjoying the wealth of, that God has given you? Well, I wrote down four sets of words. Um, I'm grateful. I'm free to enjoy it. I'm generous. And I don't find myself worrying. And I would not say that all four sets of those words always align themselves together, but I do see pieces of all of that when I am more in line with just acknowledging the Lord's blessing, trusting in something outside of just that part of the blessing, and then free to enjoy what He's given me. Um, yeah, the word that just leapt to mind was freedom. Um, when we, John and I have lived with very little, um, particularly while he was in law school, and then as he clerked and um, entered the workplace, but we have also lived with more than we need. And, um, but when we are living with a right relationship to that money, it doesn't matter how much we had, um, but there was always a freedom from worry and fear of, you know, are we going to be able to make it through the next week or month? Um, and then it's also given us an incredible freedom to serve other people and to give away. Um, and one thing that, because we are on the same page with that, has is a, just an experience. Is we had a a call one time that somebody I don't know what was happening. I don't remember who it was. I remember nothing about it. I just remember I got a phone call and it, it was somebody needs dinner, and it was like three o'clock in the afternoon, and I had a roast in the oven, which at that time a roast was like the big meal for the week. Um, 
And I just drove our dinner over. And John came home and, you know, he wasn't expecting anything, but he said, what's for dinner? I said, well, I made a pork loin, but um, I gave it away. So we're having cereal. And he was like, good, I'm glad you could do that. Mm. And it just, what a blessing that um, not only was I in the right mindset to freely give away our dinner, but that he also was supportive of that. And that's just the unity in that understanding of what our things are for um, has enabled us to move out together to bless people around us in all kinds of ways. Um, And it can be something small but very inconvenient, like our dinner that night, but also larger things that um, we hear about a missionary with, uh, you know, who needs a lump sum because they've had a large expense. And we're able to to move money that direction because we've been saving it for that purpose or um, and just not hanging on to it like it's ours um, and knowing that it's the Lord's and that he has work that is set up for that money and allows us to just give it away without bitterness or resentment. Um, So just that glorious freedom and joy um, when you're thinking about your money as his money instead of just something to benefit yourself. I love that, Sarah. Thanks for sharing that. That really touched me a lot. Um, I came at this, this question, I come at this question with um, just sort of a totally different thought, Um, a personal example. One of the things that I have often struggled with is just being able to stop and enjoy. Just use what you have and enjoy. That's, I I tend to be the workaholic. So I thought, okay, when recently has, have I just really enjoyed something? So here's my story. Um, I love to read and I've had lots of time to do that. I've started rereading some books from the 50s and 60s, some Mary Stewart books that I read a gazillion years ago. Usually get them at the library, uh, couldn't find what I wanted, picked up my phone and just ordered them and didn't feel guilty about it. Um, It's fall now. There's different flavors of coffee. So to sit down in my chair in front of my beautiful windows, read my Mary Stewart book, have a little bit of my maple pecan coffee, life is good. Mm, And I'm mm -hmm. thankful to be able to do that. Mm, That's great. That's a great story. And it gives testimony. You don't realize that the ability to enjoy those small things, it gives testimony to the goodness of God and the mm-hmm. all-sufficiency of God and the power of God. It's not a waste. It's worship, in a sense, to be able to do that. You know, in Romans 8, Paul beautifully describes the freedom believers have from bondage of sin and the life that's theirs in the Spirit. He makes the statement that if God did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how, he, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, Paul's not talking about everything we want monetarily, but he's talking about a rich life in Jesus. And that's the fulfillment of what Solomon was talking about in our passage when he says that God will keep his people occupied with joy in their hearts. Whatever worldly wealth we do or do not have is relegated to its appropriate place when we compare it to the love of God towards us in Christ. With that note of encouragement, we hope you will join us again next week. Take us with you on your way to work or let us help you bake pumpkin bread. Sarah and Julie will be back again as we discuss Ecclesiastes 7 and 1 through 29 and what it looks like to resist fighting folly with folly. We'd love for you to listen in. Sometimes a light surprises the Christian wife she sees. It is the Lord. 
rises with healing in his wings when comforts are declining he grants the soul again a season of shining to cheer it after the rain 